Well, good morning. Greetings from the uh, great state of Texas. I was part of uh, one of our mission teams that spent last week down there. And we took 36 folks and we went down in that area around the Houston area where the Hurricane Harvey came through a couple years ago. You know, once the news cycle kind of moves on from these areas, we kind of forget about them. And it's been almost two years and there is still all kinds of devastation down there. And I think sometimes in our minds too, we think that, well, it only happens to the poor people, you know, the people that, you know, just have to live in certain kind of areas that are prone to flooding and hurricanes and things like that. That is just not true at all down there. There are subdivision after subdivision of all brick homes, $300,000, $400,000. But people didn't have flood insurance because nobody expected 50 inches of rain in places that have never experienced flooding before. And uh, just remember those folks in, in your prayers. You can drive through subdivisions down there where every third home is still either abandoned or has not been repaired yet. Just house after house after house. Some of them are beautiful homes, but you can see, you can look in just, just from the street and see that somebody walked out of that house when the waters receded and never came back. And then other houses, you can look in and you see studs, two by fours, because everything's been ripped out, but for whatever the reason, no repairs have been made. And a lot of times it's probably just a financial thing because people just don't have the money if they didn't have flood insurance. So I'll continue to uh, pray for those. If you're a guest this morning, we are so glad that you're here and you've chosen to worship at Burning Bush. And we hope that uh, God speaks to you today. And also would like to remind you, if, uh, if you like a different flavor of music, we have two services here every week. And uh, the early service that starts at 940 is uh, more of a traditional service. But regardless, we are, we're so happy that uh, you're worshiping with us today. So this morning... We're going to start a new series, and it's going to last through the month of June, a four-week series, and we're going to talk about prayer. When it comes to the elements of discipleship, I don't know that I, don't, I, that I can think of a more puzzling element of discipleship for many believers than prayer. There just seems to be a lot of confusion about prayer. So here's how we're going to begin this morning. I want you to look, talk to your neighbor here. I'm going to give you about a minute. And I want you to tell them what question or what is it about prayer that you feel like you just quite don't have a handle on. Because on just about every Christian I know, there's something about prayer that they just can't seem to wrap their minds around it. So I'm going to give you about 60 seconds. Just share that with your neighbor. One, two, three, go. Some of your questions are probably more doctrinal in nature. 
And those questions might have included something along the lines, well, well, how does prayer really work? What is God's role in prayer? What is my role in prayer? What's God's attitude toward prayer? And I'm sure some of your questions might have been kind of more along the lines of, of practical things like, well, how often do I pray and how long should I pray and does posture matter? And is there some kind of specific kind of format that I need to be following? And maybe you thought you think to yourself, well, why don't I want to pray sometimes? I just don't want to. And, and maybe you think to yourself, you know, I know people that when they pray, it just seems like they can reach up and, and touch the sandals of Jesus. And when I pray, it just doesn't even feel like it gets above my head. And then I think some of the questions are probably more like theoretical questions like, why do some groups, their prayers mostly just revolve, just seem to be the Lord's Prayer? And is there a difference between a creed and a prayer? Or maybe this, how can two godly people be praying for opposite things or opposite results? Or why do I feel like God isn't listening to me? Or maybe you think, why would God listen to me? And then maybe the biggie is this. Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Well, through this next month, we're going to try to answer as many of those questions as we can. And, and hopefully it'll be a blessing to you and, and in, your, in your prayer life. And we're going to kind of start this morning in the book of Luke, and all the scriptures will be on the screen. If you want to look in your Bible, it'll be Luke chapter 18. But uh, would you join me in prayer as, as we kind of get started today? Heavenly Father, we come to you today. Father, as I talk about the trip that we're just on, I'm just reminded of, of all the wonderful things and just the ways that we saw you work down in the Beaumont and Port Arthur and Viter area and Father, we continue to pray for those folks and folks that are not able to be in their homes and folks that have all kinds of material needs and food needs and things like that. And Father, we remember the, the children that we came in contact with and Father, just the, 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 the expressions on their faces and the joy that they had that somebody was there and somebody cared about them. And Father, we pray that you continue to send other people to minister to them. And Father, I pray this morning for us talk about this subject of prayer that just can be puzzling sometimes. Speak to our hearts. Use your word. We're like the disciples this morning. Teach us how to pray. Father, do that. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. No. The answer is still no. End of discussion. That's my final answer. Those were the concluding words I had with two of my boys when they were teenagers a number of years ago. The conversation was Austin and Travis. Many of you know who Austin and Travis are. The conversation started like this. Austin said to me, Dad, you are so cool. You are my favorite dad. You know, it was tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, but I knew he wanted something. You know, being wise beyond my years, I knew something was up. And he continued, 
Hey, by the way, Josh is getting rid of his mini bike. He said we could have it. Please, Dad. Yeah, and then my other son, Travis, you know, he's like, yeah, Dad, we, we promise. We'll be careful. We promise. And I said, I don't think so. Come on, Dad. It's just a mini bike. And Travis is chiming in. Yeah, it's just a, a little mini bike. No, no, boys, we've had this conversation before. I, I don't think it's a good idea. And then Austin continued. But Dad, he has to get rid of it. If we don't take it, he's just going to put it out by the curb and just anybody will end up with it. We can't let that happen. And Travis again, yeah, Dad, come on. No. Oh, Dad, just give us one good reason. This is Austin, my son that lives for adventure and danger. You know, the one that thinks it's perfectly fine to jump out of a perfectly good airplane or fly helicopters or things like that. I mean, that's, that's his mindset. We'll be careful. Give me one good reason. Yeah, Dad, Travis says. It's dangerous. But Dad, we've never done anything restless. <laughs> yeah, you know my boys, you know that that's not true. Travis, yeah, I haven't either. And so I started into, well, let's see, Austin. When we lived in North Carolina, you were on a first name basis with the emergency room personnel. That is a true statement. I'm not kidding. They knew him when he came in. There was the time that you broke your leg on a bicycle jump. There was the other time you broke your other leg on a trampoline jump. And Travis, there was your kamikaze move coming down on a bike and you broke your, your wrist, your arm. Do I have to go any further? Those were non-motorized things that you managed to break body parts on. But Dad, come on. And that's when I said, no, the answer is still no. End of discussion. That's my final answer. I feel like the way my boys approached me that day is the way that we sometimes feel like we have to approach God. That we have to beg that we have to implore him, that we have to confangle our way into his presence, plead. That's the only way God's going to listen to us. So we'll kind of talk about that this morning, kind of God's attitude toward prayer. And I'm going to do that by recounting the story found in the book of Luke. And there's only two characters in our story, so hopefully if, if I do my job well, hopefully you'll get a better understanding of, of God's attitude toward prayer. The first character that we come across, and I'm going to read some scriptures here in just a minute, but the first character is this persistent widow. She's a widow. Now, sometimes in our culture, we think about widows, and, and you know, it's easy to think about a, a Gloria Vanderbilt or a, a Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis or somebody like that. We think about those kind of widows, and, and in our culture, widows can be wealthy, and, and they can have a lot of social status, and, and they can have their own business and, and run their own business. And, and being a widow in our society, it doesn't say anything about your social or economic status. But in Judea, about 2,100 years ago, when you were a widow, that said everything. When this, when this passage was penned, being a widow, would be there would be this assumption. You would be uneducated. You would be poor. 
unemployed, unemployable, devoid of power, status, you'd have no connections. To kind of put it in our language where we might understand what it would be like for a widow, back in those times it would be like the equivalent of being a street person today. Somebody living in downtown Chattanooga under a bridge or in a cardboard box or something like that. I don't really like this term, but somebody that we might refer to as a bag lady. So you see the picture now? A widow in the first century, and remember women, women in general just were like property. But when you became a widow, it was desperation. She's a, it's, it's unfortunate, she's dependent on everybody else. She's a social outcast. And so Luke begins his story by talking about this widow. And he doesn't give us a lot of information, but we know what widows were like. And we can tell by the context here what was going on. She was being harassed by somebody, probably some local villain. And most likely, maybe she has a little bit of money left that her husband left her, or maybe she has some land that her husband left her. And he's trying to get that from her. And we don't know exactly how he's harassing her, but it's probably pretty easy to guess that maybe he was physically intimidating her. Maybe he was trying to exploit her in some way, or, or maybe he was threatening to sue her. But regardless, he is just, this villain we'll call him, is just working this widow lady over. And she has no money. She has no connections. She has no status. She has nowhere to turn for help in this bad situation that she finds herself in. And so she finally realizes that she has one recourse, and that's to go down to the local judge and just kind of throw herself and ask for his mercy and see if she can give him some kind of help. So we'll pick up the story in verse 1 with that kind of background there. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 18 says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to, to, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. So we're introduced to this judge. Most likely this judge had bought his position, his judgeship. That was very common. He's probably a Gentile. Of course, he's living in Palestine in the home of the Jews. But he's most likely a Gentile. And he's probably bought his position by paying off the Roman authorities. The Romans didn't care about the Israelites. They didn't give a rip about it. And so if you wanted to pay for a position, it would be a very lucrative position because you could take all kinds of bribes. And, and that was kind of commonplace. So people would buy judgeships because it meant you could have a lot of money just because you could take bribes. And then he's kind of crisply described with two statements. It says he neither feared God nor cared what people thought. So think about those two statements. He didn't fear God and he had no sense of accountability when it came to people. He shows no respect for God's word. He doesn't care about God's wisdom, God's justice. He doesn't worry that someday he's going to have to stand for a day of reckoning. He is just this loose cannon, just fired away about whatever he pleases. Doesn't care one 
iota about God, doesn't care about justice, just his own personal fancy. Have you ever met somebody that had no fear of God? Ever met somebody like that? I've had conversations with people like that through the years. I don't believe in God. I'm not scared. He's not going to send me to hell because he doesn't even exist. I've had a conversation kind of along those lines with people. Those kind of people scare me, to be honest with you. Just that disdain for God. Let me share with you some quotes from some of these are kind of famous people that you'll recognize, and they're very similar to probably how this judge was. Everybody probably knows John Lennon. He did an interview in an American magazine, and this is what he said. This was in 1966. John Lennon of Beatles fame. Christianity will end. It will disappear. I didn't even have to argue about that. I'm certain of that. Jesus was okay, but his subjects were too simple. Today, he says we, talking about the Beatles, we are more famous than him. Of course, we all know a few years later, Lennon was assassinated, shot six times. Tancredo Neves was the president of Brazil. During a presidential campaign, re-election campaign, he made the statement that if he got 500,000 votes from his party, not even God could remove him from presidency. The day before his inauguration for his second term, he died. Just died. How about the man who built the Titanic, who made the statement, not even God can sink it. We all know how that turned out, don't we? Bon Scott, if you don't recognize that name, he was the lead vocalist for ACDC. In 1979, one of their songs was, Don't Stop Me, I'm Going Down All the Way, Down the Highway to Hell. A few months later, they found him dead in February of 1980. He had choked to death on his own vomit. And then this last story. A group of friends who were drunk went to pick up a friend, and the mother accompanied her daughter to the car. And she was kind of worried about the, the sobriety of the people in the car, and she begged her daughter not to get in the car with them, and her daughter wouldn't have any part of that. So when her daughter left, she said, may God be with you and protect you. And this is what her daughter said. Only if he, talking about God, travels in the trunk, because inside here it's already full. A few hours later, there was a tragic accident, and everybody in the car was killed, and it was just a horrific accident couldn't tell by looking at the front of the car what the make of the car was. And the police could not figure out by the, the, the accident how the trunk basically looked like it was untouched because the, the devastation was just horrific on the front of the car. And when they opened the trunk to their surprise, there was a dozen eggs and none of them had been cracked, not a single one. That's kind of the the attitude that these people I've just talked to you about, that's how the attitude of this judge is. He has no respect for God. None whatsoever. No fear. No respect. And he doesn't have any respect for human beings. He's free to use his courtroom as he pleases. Frankly, he doesn't care about anybody else. People in his courtroom, their interruptions, their problems, their hassles, unless they have money. That's all he cares about. So you kind of have the picture in your mind here now. 
met this widow lady who's pretty much helpless. No money, no recourse, no connections, no, 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 no status. We have a villain we don't really know about, but we know that he's out there and he's making this lady's life miserable, this widow's life miserable. And then we have this judge who didn't care less, doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people. I mean, if this is a movie and we're watching it, here's what we're thinking, right? Don't go to that judge. Don't do it. Don't go there. Forget about it. Please don't do it. Because we can predict what's going to happen in this courtroom. Look at verse 3. It says in verse 3, He said, in a certain town, I'm sorry, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. So she comes to the judge and she's desperate. She's been villainized and her only reason, only, only hope is to throw herself on this guy, and basically his license plate could read Slumlord or whatever, because he doesn't want any part of her. She's like, I want my rights. I have nowhere else to turn. Please, judge, hear my case. And basically, you could almost infer that the judge just laughed at her, threw her back out on the streets. We go a little bit further, and we read, the widow is so hurt and so shocked. Verse 4. For some time he refused, but he finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, verse 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So this widow is, is hurt. And so she doesn't know what else to do, so she kind of gets almost like this wartime resolve, and she's determined that she's just going to keep coming to this judge over and over. She has no money. She can't hire any attorneys. So she figures, the only thing I can do is just harass this judge. I'm just going to keep coming to him, and I'm just going to keep doing whatever it takes. We read in verse 5 that he says she's bothering me. And so that she won't eventually come and I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So she's just she's just there all the time. And she's just she's just on him. I mean, that's all she knows to do. She's like, when he goes home, I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be there when he's in his courtroom. I'm gonna be there when he goes to the big box store. I'm gonna be on this guy like a shirt. I mean, I'm gonna be there all the time. I mean, until he puts some cement slippers on me and throws me into the, the river. I'm going to be after this guy. It's interesting. There are a couple of interesting words that, that he uses to describe her. One is the word bother. That literally means to poke in the eye. So her attitude is, I'm basically figuratively just going to keep poking this guy in the eye until he does something. That's what I'm going to do. And then this word bother is a boxing term. And it, it means to, to give blows. And those of you who have any knowledge of boxing, you know, the, the term body blows. You just keep hitting them in the body until you wear them down. That's what that, this term means. She's just giving him body blows, so to speak, figuratively. Over and over, she's poking him in the eye and she's giving him body blows. And she's just going to stay after this, this crook, crooked judge until he does something to help her. Just, just over and over. Well, in the end... Because she's bothered him enough, she gets justice. And he says, somebody 
fix this lady's problem so that she'll leave me alone. And apparently, by the context, that's what happens. And then we all kind of can conclude that the only reason she got justice was not because he cared anything, but it was just because of her ability to what? To pester. So the moral of the story, or the, the point of this story then becomes, we need to pester, right? We need to beg, we need to plead. The only way to get what you want from somebody is to pester or plead. You know, it's interesting that when we started, when you start this out, that the first verse there, that Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Well, that term, not give up, is kind of an interesting term, too. It literally has to do with worry. And it means to fill your mind up with thoughts of worry or to fill your mind up with bad thoughts. So he's saying, don't give up. Always pray and don't fill your mind with worrisome thoughts because good things don't come out of that. Most of you know, I used to live up in North Carolina. I used to work at a Christian camp up there. And the camp kind of sits on the side of a mountain. And there's a, not a lot of paths, but there's one particular path that goes up to this area that's called Plow Point. It's about a mile and a half long, fairly steep trail uh, in places. And when you get to the top, the reason it's called Plow Point is because there's this rock that kind of, a, a big rock, a ledge, that comes out kind of to a point, and from underneath it looks like a, an old-timey plowshare, you know, that came out and then went back under like that. Well, that's what this, this ledge or this, this point looks like, and it's gorgeous. You get out there and you can see for miles and miles and miles. Just look out over all the valleys and, you know, the cars look like little ants scurrying along, and it's, and it's just gorgeous. Well, I left there 20 years ago, and I lived there about seven years, and this trail existed long before I got there. But when I, first time I ever took somebody up that trail, probably 1991, somewhere in there, it's, it's a pretty steep trail, but the path itself was, was smooth. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's steep, but it's easy to walk on, I mean, as long as you don't mind the elevation kinds of things. But through the years, because of all the horses going up there and things like that, the water has just, just started eroding it. And I can even tell the difference between the first time I went up that trail and the time I left. And a couple of years ago, I was up there visiting, and I took a hike up there. And that trail that used to be pretty easy to walk on as far as just being level on your feet was almost impossible to walk on. Because of all the erosion that has taken place, because of the water and no erosion procedures were put in, implemented anywhere to stop that, that trail has basically been carved out four feet, sometimes six feet deep. There's all these loose rocks, and it kind of comes down in this bead, and so you're almost kind of walking like this because you can't really get both feet in the middle of it because it's carved it out into this, in, in almost like a gorge. And then the water has done that through the years. Worry is like water coming down that trail. It begins just like it did there with just this, this little trickle. And that's what worry is, this little trickle of doubt. And then if we're not careful, that becomes a stream of fear. And then we can let worry just become this flood that carves out a grand canyon of anxiety in our minds. 
Jesus says, don't worry. Keep praying. And so for years, many people have looked at this story and they, they, they kind of come away with the idea that what we need to do is this is an allegory. Aha, it's an allegory. And what I need to do is, you know, our wheels are turning. Well, we have challenges and we have difficulties in our life and things that aren't going right and unresolved conflicts and, and we can't handle them alone. So what we need to do is we need to go to God with these things and we just need to, to pester God about them. And we just need to beg and we need to plead and, and just like the desperate widow, that's what we need to do. And then we come away too with the idea, well, well God is like the judge, right? And, and he's busy and, and he's got a universe to run and, and he's got angels to keep in harmony and harps to tune and stuff like that, right? I mean, I mean, God's just busy. And there are so many needy people coming to him that I just need to really be sure that whatever my problem is is really important or I don't need to bother God about it. But if it is important, boy, I need to get intense about it. I need to get on my knees. Maybe I need to write my requested blood instead of ballpoint pens. And, you know, just that kind of idea, just beg and plead with him. And then we have this idea that somehow if we beg and plead and implore God long enough, like my kids did, that somehow I can pull a blessing out of God's clenched fist if I just get intense and I beg long enough. And then God will be like, tell one of his angels, go fix their problem. Tired of hearing about it. You think that's what the story means? That's not what the story means. You know, oftentimes I talk to people and they have this idea that the greatest challenge of prayer is somehow you've got to find the golden key that's going to unlock the vault of God's blessings. And if you can just figure out what that golden key is. And I mean, if you go to a bookstore, go online, and you start looking at books on prayer, there's so many of those kind of books with that idea. Unlock God's power in your life. Five keys to getting God's blessings. Like there's this just magical key that somehow, if you can just figure out what it is, God's hand will open up to you, and everything will be okay, and you can get... A blessing. Or send money to the television evangelist and he'll throw things down on his prayer rug or something for you. Or, or give so much money to somebody who'll light some candles and, and then your problems will be solved. But that, when that's true. Obviously it's not true. Let's look at the end of this. Verses 6 and 8 kind of conclude. Verses 6 through 8. It says this. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on the earth. So that's the end of the story. Jesus is giving us the meaning. Here's what he's saying. He is saying, this is not an allegory. He is saying it's a study in contrast. It's a study in opposites. He's saying you are not like the widow. You're the opposite of the widow. The widow was poor. She was powerless. She was abandoned. She had no relationship to the judge. 
And Jesus is saying, you're God's children. You are not like the widow lady. You are not helpless. You are God's priority. You are his children. And because you are related to him, you can come to him like a son or a daughter. The widow lady couldn't do that. He said, you are totally unlike her because you are related to God as a believer in Jesus Christ. In God's courtroom, you're not a problem. You are not a number. You're not a, a bag lady. You are not a street person. You're my child. And you matter to me. So don't pray. You tell us, don't pray like you're penniless, poor, powerless, nameless, faceless, forgotten widows. That's not who we are. We are children of God. You know, if you and I were to be in a meeting, or maybe we go to lunch one day, I put my cell phone up, and I, I just think it's rude to, to, to do cell phone calls and texts and all that kind of stuff when you're meeting with somebody or, or, or having lunch or whatever. But there is one exception. If one of my kids call, I will answer it. That's the only exception. Because if they're calling me, it's something important. They just don't call dad in the middle of the workday for no reason. If my kids call, I'm going to answer the phone to see, see what's going on. They're my first priority. My kids and my wife, they're my priority. So if they call, I'm going to answer it. And I want to hear from my kids. I like hearing from them, especially the ones that, that live out of town now. They're my children. We're God's children. He wants to hear from us. He wants to hear our voices. And like any parent, responsibly, we want to give our kids things. We want to see them happy. We want to see them smile. Responsibly, of course. But God wants to do things for us because we're his children. We come to him, Father, Abba, whatever it is. He wants to hear from us. God loves to hear your voice. You're not like the widow. And do I need to say that God is not like the judge? The judge doesn't care. He's ruthless. He's unfair. He just, just doesn't care about people. But God is merciful, loving, sympathetic. Caring. Psalmist says, taste and see that our Lord is good. We don't have to somehow figure out a way to wrench a blessing from God's fist. We don't have to do that. He said it's, it's a study in opposites. It's like as far as the east is from the west, Jesus puts it in other places. It's like you're as far from the widow as the North Pole is from the South Pole. You are nothing like her. And God is giving, and God wants to, to meet your needs. He wants to hear your prayers. Let me just kind of summarize things like this. First summary statement is this. God is interested in your prayers because he is interested in you. It's that simple. Everybody wants to hear from their children. He wants to hear from us. God has the universe functioning smoothly, and he wants to hear from us. 
and wants to know what's going on in your life. You don't have to beg to get his attention. You don't have to flail yourself, cut your wrists, that kind of stuff, to show that you mean business with God. You don't have to do that. In fact, you know, I was joking about earlier, Austin, of course, was talking tongue-in-cheek, but, but if one of my kids calls me, Daddy, Daddy, please, I beg of you. Please, please, please. I know, you know what's that about? Don't talk to me like that. No. God's the same way. What can I do for you? Bring it to him. He's interested. So God is interested in your prayers because he's interested in you. Here's the second thing. And this is really important. Not only is God interested, he is able. That, that matters a lot. He is able. He is able to grant your prayer request. It's great that he's interested, but he is also Able. You know, if you came to me and said, would you clean my teeth? You're in trouble. I, I don't clean teeth. I don't know how to clean teeth. We have some kids in our church, the Booth family kids. They get my name Dennis mixed up and they call me, they think I'm a dentist. And, I mean, they, every one of their children has done that until they're like four or five years old. They think Dennis the dentist. You know, that kind of thing. You know, if you need, uh, if you need plants, Go to the Holcombs. I'm not going to be much help for you with plans. You need some printing? Go see Joey Callahan. I'm not going to be able to help you with that. You need some grass sod? Go see Bernard Sims. He can help you with that. You need a million dollars? Don't come to me and I don't know who to send it to you. <laughs> but God's not like that. God is able. He is able to meet our needs. God created the universe. There's no problem. He made the earth. No big deal. His son rose from the dead. Not a big deal. Stilling storms. Piece of cake to God. It's easy. Your problem is never too big for God. He is able. And finally, let me quote a verse from Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6, it reads, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. That's what he says to us. Bring our requests to him. Whatever's going on, he is interested. Interested. He invites us into his presence. He invites us to share our concerns. And he's listening and he's there.